This is the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate podcast. Last week down in Bradenton, Florida, mm -hmm. where we had five key principles of which three of them had very minority interests, but they wanted to sign because their long-term goal is to be acquiring and, and financing properties on their own, you know, with, without other you know, sponsors involved. You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business. What's up, guys? This is Jonathan Farber, host of the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. This show is all about achieving financial freedom as fast as possible so you can do whatever makes you happy in life. For me, that vehicle was real estate, and it's how I achieved financial freedom at 27. If you want to know how I got started, my journey is presented in a YouTube video posted in the show notes, and I post daily in our private Facebook group about my favorite topics and day-to-day -day strategies. I appreciate you guys being here, and let's get started. Oh, by the way, reach out if you ever need help. I try to keep my calendar open to talk to anyone that needs it or has any quick questions. See you guys. Talk to you later. This episode is sponsored by Infinite Road Destinations, the smartest short-term rental property management group I know, and the group that manages my properties. This is a company that's very close to my heart, run by two of the smartest, most attentive people I know, Claire Rosenberg and Alex Brashears. Claire and I first met when we worked together at NetApp, where she was a top performer and rose crazy fast in the company. And Alex is just one of the most active, genuine people I know in the real estate space. The two of them together bring a blended background of project management, software design, and extensive experience with automation tools and virtual assistants. Through these experiences, they optimize any property to deliver a hands-off experience to owners while delivering the highest occupancy and highest daily rates possible. You guys know I would not recommend anything to anyone in this group that I do not fully endorse or think that is the absolute best product. And this company is that. And like I said before, this is the exact company and people that manage my Airbnbs. If you don't believe me, here are a few of the other tools and services that come along with the team. Listing optimization, guest support and approval, communication and reservations, key exchange and management, dynamic pricing, welcome kit creation, listing advertising and marketing, vendor management, including cleaners, maintenance, handymen, runners, and monthly property reports. To learn more, check out shorttermmadeeasy.com or email info at shorttermmadeeasy.com. And on the forum, just mention that you heard it here or mention my name. So give it a try. You have nothing to lose and they offer a satisfaction guarantee. And I assure you guys, you will not be disappointed. What's up, guys? Today, we have an awesome but different episode with Daryl Bouquetis. I hope I said that right. But Daryl is a commercial real estate lender based in Charlotte, North Carolina. And boy, does he understand how this industry works. He's been doing it for about 20 years with CBRE. He does loans all over the country, specializes in loans that I know a lot of you guys are looking into or doing yourselves, which is the Fannie Freddie small business or, or small balance loans. Um, of over a million dollars, but um, still not as big as the big boy loans that you can't get certain traditional financing for or terms on. And we just kind of go in through all things lending of beginner questions, terms, how to get started with these lenders, everything from kind of high level multifamily into terms of what is Fannie and Freddie, what is recourse, non-recourse, what's the benefit of signing on a loan as either a general partner or a key principal. We kind of just cover a lot of different bases. And I got to ask a lot of questions that I know have been floating around the Facebook group and questions I've had myself of, 
benefits of bringing KPs onto deals or signing on loans myself, and if there's really that much risk or not. Uh, we also, I also ask him what his knobs are that he would want to tweak on some of his loans to see uh, what would be the best returns or kind of what he would want to make sure is really uh, said in writing in the contract or in the loan agreement and kind of just hear it from his side as someone that does this every day with tons of investors. So really, really helpful stuff there. I think anyone that has questions on loans is going to get a lot out of this. And also Daryl is awesome in the sense of very willing to help people and very accessible. So if you do have any questions after the show, feel free to just reach out to him via phone or email. He provides both and uh, he is accessible. I've reached out to him for questions. We haven't done any business together yet, but he has always been a resource. So I highly, highly, highly recommend you guys get on his radar and start talking to him. Today's tangible tip. If you have any syndicator friends, ask them what the minimum they would allow you to invest in their deal. For most syndicators, they say it's somewhere between 50 and 100,000. But if you're friends with them, some of them will make exceptions. I'll let you maybe put 10 or 20,000 in so you can make money and learn about multifamily as you go. And in some cases, they might even let you be part of the GP, general partnership, which as we talk about with Daryl on the episode today, is a huge benefit if you have that on your track record. More so than I knew or even a lot of people know of being able to get new loans after you do this one investment with a syndicator. So um, it's not always possible, but in some cases they will let you put a lower amount into the deal or they will let you be on the general partnership in some cases. And that'll give you a huge boost for any investment you want to do after the fact because now it's on your real estate track record or your real estate resume. So very important to start building that as soon as you kind of know the direction you want to go in and uh, just hack it, figure out ways you can kind of get into the game without putting as much risk or money or kind of deal finding into your own kind of portfolio. So check it out. Awesome episode today with Daryl. Enjoy. All right, Daryl, what is going on, man? How are you doing? Welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Well, I'm excited to be joining you today, and and certainly look forward to, uh, uh, you know, to to talking about and exploring all the different aspects of multifamily and multifamily lending in the market. Uh, certainly, it's an interesting time, you know, that we're in, um, you know, relative to, to finance and multifamily specifically. Uh, overall, with what's going on in the market, treasuries, all that, it, it makes for an interesting time. Yep, absolutely. And we we got connected through Ryan Daigle who I know you've done some business with and a friend of mine, someone who's been on the show. Um, but maybe that's a good place to start if we could talk about not specifically his deal, but a, a type of deal that I think kind of from a high level would um, be be a deal that a lot of people in this group would be interested in. And, and I guess, how would you describe kind of a deal? Uh, we're talking multifamily specifically. So what type of loans, I mean, do you, do you play in of, of what size, what is like a sweet spot for you? Um, what is a typical investor for you? That, that sort of thing. And, and I will say this sure. for the audience, this is going to be a little bit of a different show. Um, we're bringing more people on the show that are kind of more kind of the, the pieces that make deals happen. You know, if it's a lawyer, an accountant, a lender, and um, Daryl is providing um, commercial loans for apartment buildings and syndicators. Um, so a lot of you guys I know are getting into that and that's kind of where we're, we're starting with this. So Daryl, maybe if you could just talk to what your sweet spot is and then kind of what, what like a deal like that with Ryan looked like, or kind of some of your, um, your clients looks like. Sure. No, love to. So just to, to provide a, a little bit of background, uh, you know, I'm with CBRE and I head up our wholesale lending group. We are actually the, the largest multifamily lender in the country. 
We're Freddie Mac's largest multifamily lender as a whole. We're also Freddie Mac's largest small balance multifamily lender. So when we're talking about small balance, and that's really my sweet spot, you know, like you were mentioning, uh, we're talking about loans that are typically in the 1 million to 7.5 million range. We can certainly do the larger ones, 20, 30, 50 million, like to see them uh, when, uh, when they come up, but that's not our bread and butter. You know, what, you know, more often than not, we are financing properties under that Fannie Mae small program or Freddie Mac small balance program, which is really geared toward, you know, the smaller B and C class properties, if you will, uh, with loan amounts that, that range from 1 million up to 7.5 million. So again, when you're those type of products and they're very, very popular in the market right now and those properties, those B and C class properties, and it doesn't mean they're, they're you know, not great properties, they are, but they are geared more toward you know, workforce housing, your school teacher, your firefighter, your policeman, someone who has section eight financing or section eight you know, vouchers that go along with them. That's, that's our sweet spot. You know, we're typically lending in that one to 7.5 million range. Okay, got it. Um, so we, I'm just going to rattle off questions. We have a lot about kind of the lending side of commercial in general. And um, I've, I even called you on one that, that I was kind of curious on a couple of weeks ago, but from a very high level, what, what is the difference between, or what is, what does it look like if someone, let's say, finds a property um, of around a million dollars that they're looking for financing on as a, as a multifamily investor? You know, let's say they're coming from the world of I've either done house hacking as a strategy or single family investing or, you know, the Burr method, you know, which is value add for multifamily, but they're coming from that world and they, they have a million dollar 25 unit multifamily property that comes across their plate. And they're going to call you and say, Daryl, what, what are my options here? What, what can I do with this thing? Um, you know, what, what do you need from me? What do I need from you? How do we have this conversation? Right. So typically, you know, if, if you're looking at a property with a, a purchase price of in the neighborhood of a million, uh, obviously you'll be financing, uh, you know, less than full purchase price. So you'll be financing, you know, 75, 80%. So that's going to bring you, you know, sub $1 million loan amount. So when you get below 1 million, typically you're, you're looking more so at, at a bank financing model, you know, where you may be dealing with a, a more like a regional or local bank for properties where you're financing less than a million. Typically, if you're financing with a Freddie Mac or a Fannie Mae small balance program, there's a hard floor uh, that Freddie's put into place of, of loans no less than one million. So anything that's gonna, gonna drop below a one million loan amount typically will, will help with financing from the standpoint of, of generally a, a bank type loan, you know, where they are looking and, and will entertain loans that are, that are less than a million. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to cap uh, on a good day at, at best at 80% LTV, mm -hmm. uh, you know, typically 25, 30 year amortization. Um, you know, sometimes you get some interest only as well. Mm -hmm. And and that's what kind of dovetails into to Fannie and Freddie, uh, why they are such a popular program. Generally, you always have interest only options. You're always financing and with a, a 30 year amortization. Uh, so your cash flow is, is going to be, uh, um, you know, obviously stronger with a 30 year amortization or interest only, and it's non recourse to you. So you don't have that personal liability, you know, that oftentimes a, a bank, you know, type loan will, will require.
Got it. So you said the the million dollar mark is kind of the cutoff. How different are the terms between doing, and if you could just define it kind of as we go through, but how different are the loan products between a loan under a million and a loan over a million? And and I guess like in that case, you know, I've heard it and I'm sure, you know, you see it all the time where some people, you know, that'll determine what type of properties they look at because it's going to change the type of financing they get. Right. So really the, the big differences between the sub 1 million and the 1 million plus uh, is the agencies will start to entertain, you know, the loans above 1 million, which is good from the standpoint of being non-recourse, being amortizations 30 year, but it also is good from a, a qualification standpoint. Uh, yeah, relative- sorry, to, sorry to jump in. You mind just, if you could define what are the agencies and what's the difference between recourse and non-recourse? Sure. So the agencies are, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, just like when you do your home loan. Typically, more often than not, you are getting a, a, a Fannie Mae loan or a Freddie Mac loan. Those are agencies or quasi agencies that are backed by the government, you know, that, that uh, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, set underwriting guidelines, um, you know, set the loan metrics that they will lend by, and they are backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. That's why they're one of the reasons why they're offered offer very competitive rates out there, um, because you know typically everybody knows that those are secured investments. So you know those are your agencies, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, relative to to multifamily finance. Uh, you can also do HUD financing, but that's a little bit more rare. Now, as compared to say and and recourse, you know when typically. You know, a non-recourse means that you have no personal liability should something negative happen to the property and you're foreclosed upon. So, for example, if you owe a million dollars on a property and the lender has to foreclose or Freddie Mac has to foreclose and they are only able to sell the property for $900,000, so, you know, basically there's a million, $100,000 loss there, you are not personally liable for it. You know, it's just written off. Whereas with bank debt, more often than not with bank debt, if, if you are borrowing from the local bank and they have to foreclose, usually there's some recourse involved, if not full recourse, full liability. So if they had to foreclose on the property and they're not able to sell it for the existing loan balance, you know, they're going to put a lien against you or come after you for the difference you know, that, that you're going to owe. So that, that's one of the big major differences between bank debt non-recourse Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac agency debt. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's just one of the differences. Also, one of the differences, well, too, is how loans are underwritten. You know, typically a bank wants you to, they'll look at your tax returns, they're going to look at your other income, you know, they're going to, you know, look at you from a a global perspective. You know, I see you own this other investment properties. How's that going? How's this going? They really dig into your entire financial picture. Whereas with the agency or Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they are solely looking at the property. You know, the, the cash flow of the property. Yes, you have to credit qualify, but they're not digging into your tax returns and saying what's going on over here, what's going on over there. It's really, they're drilling down to the subject property. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a really good explanation. So I guess for someone who is starting the search, like, I know it's hard to say, but but hearing it from that perspective, it almost makes me think, why would anyone want to start searching for under a million dollars? 
because then they're potentially personally more risk or reliability in the deal. Is there any benefit of looking under a million dollars or would you typically not recommend people start there? No, it's, it's fine to do that, especially for the new investor in the market. Uh, if you're looking at under a million, you're, you're really doing that. Hopefully as you, over time, as you continue to grow your business, you know, you're going to look at the, the larger properties out there, but it's a great way to get experience. It's a great way to uh, get your bona fides relative to multifamily experience because the agencies do want to see an experienced borrower. Mm-hmm. And, and I can go into the details of that. But, you know, until you have that experience or have a co-borrower who does have, you know, that experience, and there's some workarounds. But, you know, working on the smaller properties uh, it is certainly a good avenue to get that experience and at the same time certainly get return on your capital. Um, but it, it's, it's a great avenue to get that experience. The one thing that I would suggest, though, is if you are looking sub $1 million, at least you look at properties that are five units or more. Mm-hmm. Because five units is the multifamily classification, five units or greater, whereas, you know, your, your one, two, three, or quads are still considered single family. And, mm-hmm. and you want to have true multifamily experience, and that's going to be five units or greater. So what I'd love to talk about next is qualifications, um, because you mentioned earlier, and this is very different than traditional multi residential investing, that it's really more about the deal than the person. But let's say someone who had no real estate experience just had a great deal plop into their lap. And let's just say it was a 50 unit deal and the purchase price was $2 million, but they've literally never done anything real estate related before but the deal works like uh, any, any underwriter or anyone that has real estate experience with financials knows that it's a great deal. What would happen in that scenario if they brought it to you and said, Hey, can you finance this deal? Right. So if it's a great deal, but there is absolutely no investment property experience whatsoever. So there's a couple of different avenues that we would look at. Uh, First off down payment certainly comes into play. You know, Typically, from an experience standpoint, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac want to ideally, in a perfect world, see that you've owned at least two or three multifamily properties currently or in the past. That's what they would love to see. They also want to see that the property you're looking at, typically you reside within a 100-mile radius of the property, if it's your first couple of properties. You know, down the road, you might have properties all over the country. So if you don't have that experience, number one, you can, you know, have a a co-sponsor and we see that a lot, you know, where you bring on a co-sponsor who does have the experience. Uh, If you, you know, or have no real estate experience whatsoever, you know, putting down a larger down payment, you know, is a way for, you know, for to get agency financing, but you're mitigating the risk. You know, obviously if you're doing 30% 30% down, 35% down, you know, it's considered to be a less risky loan by Fannie or Freddie as opposed to putting down a minimum 20%. So that's that's an option that, that may allow for agency financing. Outside of that, you know, typically what we would look at is, is try to put together some bank debt, you know, where they're not maybe as critical on true multifamily experience because this is such a, a great property. Now, to kind of dovetail on that a little bit, if you don't have true multifamily experience, but you know, maybe you own 10 single families, or maybe you, you know, own, you know, a, a bunch of, you know, retail properties or things that certainly build a case with Fannie and Freddie. 
but if you just if you don't have any of that, certainly a larger down payment, or we would look to to kind of work with a local bank or regional bank, uh, you know, who's not as strict, uh, you know, relative to true you know background with investment property experience. Yep. Okay. So let's say in that scenario, for, for, I'm sorry, for example, if you're going to put down 50%, I can get anybody along. Right. <laughs> right. A little bit tougher if you're putting down the minimum. So what are, I guess, the minimums for that type of deal? Let's say 2 million 50 units. And um, I'm, I guess maybe there's a part of it that's going to depend on experience level, but you know, what is, what is the minimum for the most experienced person? And then how would that deviate depending on someone who's coming in with less experience? Right. So for the most experienced person in the market, typically you, you can put down as little as 20%. Um, so you can get 80, 80% financing from an LTV standpoint uh, on a property in a decent sized market. You know, when you get out into smaller markets or very tertiary markets, uh, you know, Freddie or Fannie deem them to carry a little bit more risk. Uh, so they require a little bit more down payment. Um, so if you're buying in New York, you can put down 20%. But if you're buying in upstate New York, Albany, you know, or, or, you know, very small market, they're going to require 25% down payment. So it, it depends on the market size, even for the most experienced borrower. So, you know, from, from that standpoint, that's what you're looking at. You're also assuming, you know, you, you also have the cash flow, the NOI to support, you know, that loan amount as well. I mean, theoretically, we can go to 80% in Charlotte, Miami, Dallas, wherever, provided you've got the, the cash flow, the property's putting off the appropriate cash flow to support uh, that loan amount. So that's for the most experienced borrower. Got it. Okay. Um, and can we talk about, I guess, the, the concept of like general partners bringing on, or I guess what a general partner is, but also bringing on someone who's going to co-sign guarantee or KP on a loan. If you could just kind of define or explain what does all that stuff mean? Sure. And that's what we see a lot of today. So generally, you know, if, if you're putting together a deal or you're putting together a syndication or, or, or you're just looking at a property you're buying, if you're going to be the managing member, if you're going to have active management in that property, if you control the asset, you are considered to be a, a key principal or a general partner or a general manager. You know, Freddie and Fannie really, they use that term key principal, meaning you have control over the asset. Okay. So you're going to be required to, to sign, you know, the carve outs, you know, uh, car, even though it's non-recourse, you still have a, uh, you still have liability if you committed fraud or you do something expressly prohibited in the loan documents, but it, you're going to have to sign on the dotted line. You know, you're, you may bring in other passive investors if you're syndicating a deal uh, who do not sign any paperwork. They're just providing capital. We don't underwrite them. We don't do anything with those folks at all, unless, you know, those individuals are putting in 25% or more. You know, if, if an individual is bringing 25% or more to the table, we do underwrite them. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean they function as a key principal or have to sign on the dotted line. Now, <laughs> now <clears throat> oftentimes you may have a, a general partner or a key principal or, or someone who's putting this deal together who doesn't necessarily have the required experience that we were just talking about. Yeah, and we see this every day. So at that point, they will also bring in another key principal, you know, into the transaction who does have that experience. 
And you know, so we will be, you know, underwriting that individual as well, you know, because they're bringing the experience piece of the puzzle to the table to qualify for the Fannie Freddie loan. Does that make sense? So that, I think that that makes total sense. That makes total sense. I, I think basically what we're just kind of getting at here, and for those in multifamily understand this, for those that don't, is basically you need someone to come in that meets a certain set of requirements to get the loan. And and I think we talked about some of it. Maybe we could just drill into it a little bit more. But in, in many cases, what that is, is a co-signer or guarantor or a key partner, key principal partner, who basically has some of these boxes checked that the banks are going to require. Main one being net worth or um, and the net worth being at least the loan size or greater. There might be some other ones, but maybe can you talk to that, like, what is their value? Why are they needed to come in and co-sign or guarantee a loan? Well, uh, as, as you just mentioned, Jonathan, you have, you know, there's certain requirements relative to, um, you know, to qualifying, you know, with the agencies, one of which is net worth equal to the loan amount or greater. And that's the combined net worth of, of the entire key principles. So if you have three different key principles, you know, we add all of their net worths up and it, it needs to equal or be greater than the loan amount. You also have liquidity requirements. You need to have at least nine months of principal and interest in liquidity post-closing. So in other words, you're not putting your last dollar into the deal. And again, we combine that from all of those key principles. Uh, so those are two of the key factors why you do bring in that co-sponsor, that co-borrower. The, the primary reason though, that we see more often and they're not as you're bringing in that, that co-borrower, that co-signer, if you will, uh, who has the experience piece of the puzzle. That's the, the thing that we're really looking at. You know, so oftentimes, you know, you may be putting a deal together. You, you don't meet the qualifications from an experience standpoint. But you bring in that co-signer, that co-borrower, that co-principal who does check that box relative to experience. That's more often than not, you mm -hmm. know, why you're bringing you're that, that co-sponsor. And so now we're getting into something that these are just some personal questions that I've either received or asked myself when looking at deals. Like I have syndicator friends who have offered to give a portion of me, give a, let me in on the GP side. Okay. And then saying that'll be on my, my track record. And I never actually really understood what that meant because like, even if it meant a small percentage and, and, maybe some of them were blowing smoke, like this would help you and maybe it actually would help me, but I don't know, I, I wasn't really sure at the time. So when when a bank is looking at someone's experience, like let's say you know I invested in another syndication and I have a very, very small percent of a GP, even in that, let's say 1%, but I technically did sign on it. My name is on the, the general partnership. What is that actually mean now going forward for me after that? Like, is my, is my credibility that much higher or is a bank recognizing that I don't really own that much in it and my experience isn't as much as maybe, you know, like uh, some would lead on. So I just want to get a, like kind of a footing here, but like how, how useful would that be for someone? It's very useful. You know, we, we do see that quite a bit, you know, where you have a, a group of folks who come in and, and, and maybe putting in a very, you know, minority percent, you know, into the deal. Uh, but yet they, they are willing to, they want to sign uh, on the deal as, as a key sponsor, as a key principal. Uh, primarily the reason why they do that is, is to get that experience mm. on their resume, so to speak. You know, even though they, they may not have, you know, full decision-making authority over the asset, 
the fact that they are signing as a key principle, regardless of ownership percentage, uh, it is definitely checking that box. You know, uh, so down the road at some point, you know, they can go off and, and, and buy the multifamily properties and qualify on their own from an experience standpoint. So that is in fact, very helpful. Um, I closed the deal last week down in Bradenton, Florida, mm-hmm. where we had five key principles of which three of them had very minority interests, but they wanted to sign because their long-term goal is to be acquiring and, and financing properties on their own you know, with, without other, you know, sponsors involved. And, and that was starting off checking that box for them. So it's, it's very helpful. This is so interesting, Daryl, because now we're talking about signing on loans for different reasons. And there, there are the KPs who come in who can basically just bring value from a net worth perspective and they get tons of upside and they don't have to really put out a lot of capital in some cases, but they have a lot of potential benefit. And if it's non-recourse, which we're going to get to in a sec of what that actually means, but if it's non-recourse, then their risk is probably small, like fairly small. I want to hear from you how small it actually yeah. is. But on the other side of the coin, if there's a new syndicator or a new multifamily investor getting into the game that has friends that are putting a deal together and there was a way that they could be part of the general partnership, that could be a huge boost for them if and when they want to do deals themselves. So this is actually fascinating because this is like a very, I'd say, unspoken part of the business that um, could be a huge help for both people. And also, I want people to take away from this, um, and maybe you could explain it, Daryl. I'm not going to forget about the non-recourse thing, but why would, uh, we're going back to the KP part, because I I never understood this. I'm like, why would a, a KP or someone who's very wealthy want to sign on a loan that I'm a beginner and, you know, maybe, maybe like, they, I hope it's going to go well. I think it will go well, but like, why would they ever want to do this? Like, are they doing me this huge favor? And now learning more about it, they're not doing anyone a huge favor. This is business transaction. So can you maybe explain just for, for those that might not understand why someone with, um, you know, a lot of assets or high net worth, why would they ever want to sign on a loan as a key principle to kind of help make a deal happen? Well, primarily the reason we see that happen a lot is because they are basically getting a free percentage in the property. Uh, you know, so they're, they're going to benefit by way of, of cash flow from the property and they're going to benefit from overall the upside relative to the property. Uh, you know, the, the overall, you know, increase in value over time. So there's definitely the financial motive, uh, is typically the, 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 the top motive, you know, for someone coming in and, and joining the, the team and signing as a key principal, uh, with that in mind. And, and as you mentioned, Jonathan, the, the, the risk is relatively low from the standpoint, you know, with the equity that is being put down into the properties and, and, and the fact that multifamily is the strongest of all asset classes right now. You know, the chances of something negative going wrong and, and a property having to be sold, it, it's highly unlikely they're not going to be able to sell that asset for enough to, to satisfy the debt. Uh, and with even in mind, it's still a non-recourse loan, you know, so you, you really don't have that liability. Now, what you do see oftentimes is with those key principles, even though they are signing on the dotted line, they are also, uh, you know, signing as a, you know, a managing member of the ownership entity. And they do have say, you know, in how the property is managed so that they can you know, truly have a hand, you know, in, 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 in managing the asset the way that it should be managed. Uh, so yes, they may have the strong net worth, the liquidity and the experience that they're bringing to the table 
So they're willing to sign on as key principal without putting in very much or, or, or even any money. But most of those individuals are also requiring them to be, you know, a manager, you know, of the asset so that they can make sure, you know, that the property is being run, you know, as it should be managed. Mm-hmm. How much real- they're not just they're not just signing and kind of turning it loose, you know, the, you know to the inexperienced owner. Right. Um, and I actually wanted to had a note here. We'll, we'll talk about, I guess, the difference between JV and syndication and what that means for people that are signing on the loans. But, but from a, now back to that recourse versus non-recourse uh, question, you know, what, what is the real risk in a non-recourse loan? Because I remember when I first read Joe Fairless's best ever syndication book, one of my favorite real estate books, and it talked, you know, it was the first time I kind of got exposed to the terminology recourse versus non-recourse. And I thought to myself, wow, this is cool. There's, there's no risk in a, in a non-recourse loan. You know, if something goes bad, it is what it is, but now we can do all these big deals because I have a couple of friends that, you know, can, can sign on loans. that have high net worth and now I can do all these deals. But I mean, from a, from like a very, I guess, neutral standpoint, even maybe a pessimistic standpoint, I'm curious, how much risk is there for someone who's signing on a loan that is a non-recourse loan? Well, the real risk comes into play is is the property being you know managed correctly. In other words, you know when when you sign a non-recourse loan where you basically have no liability, there is also some carve-outs to that. They are commonly known as the bad boy carve-outs, and and that's associated with any non-recourse loan you sign, whether it's you know typically through the bank or through Fannie or Fred where you, you have no liability provided, you know, that you have not done something that's expressly prohibited in the loan document. For example, you, you haven't you know, provided fraudulent financials or you haven't, um, you know, you know, you know, fired your management company that without, you know, agency uh, approval, or you haven't, you know, there's certain things that you're not allowed to do without approval from the, the lender. When you do those things, when you are acting in bad faith or as a bad boy, then you open yourself up for, for personal liability. So that, that's where the real risk comes into it. Certainly, even though a property gets foreclosed on and, and, and you don't have personal liability, it doesn't matter. I mean, I won't say it doesn't matter. Um, it, it's still a negative. You know, it, you know, it still shows up on your record. So, for example, you know, 12, 15 years ago, during the, the major downturn of, of the real estate crisis, 07, 08, 09, uh, 2010, you had quite a few loans, many, many loans, you know, that, that were foreclosed on by the lender for a variety of reasons. Um, they didn't go after the borrower for any shortfall in, in uh, uh, you know, debt, uh, but it still showed up as, you know, the property went back to the lender. And, and that takes some explaining, you know, down the road as you are applying for new loans. That's what I look at as, as the major negative. As long as you're doing everything you're supposed to be doing, uh, even though you have no personal, you know, liability from the standpoint of, of making a lender whole, you know, financially, you know, it, there's still a, a certain negative connotation to any property, you know, that mm-hmm. goes back to the where you have liability or recourse or, or not. But we, you know, John, we, when I used to work at Wells Fargo on the servicing platform, you know, back, you know, post, you know, 2009, 10, when we saw many loans that were being taken back by the lender. Um, and a lot of those were very good properties. They were performing very well. 
but they had maturity dates that were coming up. And all of a sudden I owe $20 million on this property. And when I bought it, it was worth 25, but now it's worth 15. You know, even though it's still cash flowing, you know, values of properties, you know, sank dramatically. So they were unable to refinance and pay off the debt. Mm-hmm. So the even though they were payments, you know, when you have a maturity default, uh, you know, you, you, you have to pay off the loan at maturity. If you can, you're, you're defaulting on it. So there was still some, some negative connotation associated with that to the owners, even though there was no personal liability, you know, relative to, you know, finances. That's a little disturbing because the whole industry right now runs on, eh, who cares at the end of the, and, and actually, and I'll just define it if you have any comment on it, but like the end of the maturity. So basically there's amortization and then there's payback term. So amortization is basically the length at which basically your payments are broken up as if they were over that timeline. So if the amortization is 30 years, that means your payments are going to be based off you making a 30 year payback, but then the payback period is let's say five, seven, 10 years. So at the end of the five, seven or 10 years, there's going to be a amount that you still owe, but what's scary. And I said, disturbing is the way every operator kind of functions right now is they just feel at the end of the five, seven or 10 years, they'll be able to either sell or get a new loan. And that's just basically a refinance. But what you're saying is that there was not really a market for those refinances. And when those loans came up for maturity at the end of that five, seven or 10 years, there wasn't really a market for them and the loans defaulted. Am I, is that about right? Or am that's I exactly, missing that's, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, you, you had the, the crisis come about and, 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 you know, you can spend hours upon hours of, of what facilitated that crisis back in, in, in the mid two thousands. Uh, but yes, even, you know, all of these loans have a, a, a balloon payment, you know, at some point, and you would certainly think, Hey, I'm going to either be able to sell the property and satisfy the debt or refinance it and put new debt onto the property. Um, and, and typically, and that was the same mindset that was going on before, you know, however, because of the whole crash in the real estate market, you know, they were not able to refinance that debt. There was no outlet, you know, to refinance. And, and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the, the property that I was worth 30 million when I bought it is worth 25 million now, simply because, you know, properties are, you know, the, the floor fell out of the, the value in real estate. Uh, the one thing that is significantly different today than, than what happened 15 years ago is, you know, a lot of financing was, was highly aggressive back then. You were financing on pro forma income, pro forma rents, pro forma occupancy. In other words, we're going to lend to you, you know, X amount of dollars because you say you're going to be able to increase rents, you know, over the next year, or you're going to be able to increase occupancy. They were doing pro forma underwriting that's not allowed anymore. Mm-hmm. So in other words, we're, you know, lend on a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan based off of what you think you can charge in future rents. You know, that was happening 15 years ago and that's not happening today. Also, one of the main differences, and, and this is why multifamily is, is the preferred asset class today, is it is considered the safest of all of the, the asset classes relative to real estate because certain things are significantly different than they were 15 years ago. You know, back then, you know, almost anyone could go buy a house with no money down, uh, subpar credit, and, you know, no income verification. Well, you can't do that now. 
you know, so the, the, you have a much, much larger renter pool today, you know, than you had 15 years ago. And, and that's a, a significant difference. And, and one of the main reasons why the multifamily asset class is the safest and best performing of all the asset classes out there. Mm-hmm. Daryl, this is a, I'd say a personal question, but, um, because for every situation it's different. So, so I'm asking you just because you, you're kind of behind the curtain, but also, you know, you see a lot of operators do deals. If, and this was something I, Ryan and I were in a multifamily mastermind and we met like every week and we would analyze deals and we would play around with the numbers. And the thing that always tricked me up or, or tripped me up rather was there's so many knobs that you can tweak, you know, potentially to make the deal a little bit sweeter if it's try to get less down or longer amortization or basically a part of it that's maybe going to be owner financed. So the, the ones that I kind of think about now, and after hearing that payback period, that really is going to stick with me. Is there any specific knob that you would make, really want to make sure that is a, a thing that you have as part of your deal? If you were going to be buying a multifamily property, like if it was, I want to make sure on any multifamily property I buy, the payback period is at least seven years or that at least I'm getting 30 year amortization or at least a minimum or maximum of 20% down. Like, is there one knob for you that, that you would kind of deem as something that'd be really important to you if you were doing multifamily investing yourself? Yeah, there's a couple of things that I would really be looking at is, is relative to the markets that you're buying in, you know, you can certainly go into the smaller markets and, and where you're going to get a better return. But that's where you need to be a little bit more careful where you, you hopefully everybody's not employed at the Walmart distribution center and all of a sudden they pick up and go home. You know, you're, you're in trouble, uh, you know, if, if you know, that is the case or, or if I'm looking at a property, I want to make sure that, you know, my tenant base where I don't have half of the tenants that are working at a, a single employer, for example, uh, you know, who relocate and all of a sudden you've got, you've got major issues. One of the things that, you know, with multifamily, so much of, 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 of what it's about is, is cash flow. And I like using the interest only options. Uh, fact is, is principal and interest in the early years of any loan, be it your house, your, your, your multifamily property, you're simply not going to pay them that much debt uh, in the early years of the loan. Um, that's that's certainly one of the things that I look at because it's about cash flow and the interest only gives you that much more of a cushion of cash flow, uh, you know, to make your mortgage payment, to make improvements at the property. I think that's a really nice feature, you know, that is offered, um, you know, under the the agency loans, be it Fannie or Freddie. Interest only is certainly a good option. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, just give more attitude. Now, in addition to that. You know, one of the great things about, well, two of the great things about the, the Freddie Mac program, and there's a lot of things about it, but you do have basically six different types of programs. You have a five, a seven, and a 10-year balloon. They're all amortized over 30 years, or you can do some interest only. But you also have a five, a seven, and a 10-year hybrid loan. So I like the hybrids because of the example that we just talked about a moment ago. With the hybrid loan, you have it that fixed rate, you know, for five, seven, or ten years, just like you know the one we just mentioned. But at the end of that five, seven, or ten-year period, it it turns into a six-month adjustable. Now, most people don't want an adjustable rate mortgage at that point; they're going to refinance. 
But the good thing about that program is, let's say we aren't down in the real estate market. Let's say COVID just hit like it did you know, a year ago and you're having trouble refinancing, at least you don't have that balloon payment, that maturity that you have to pay off. You, you have some attitude to, to kind of ride your adjustable until the market may improve or put you in a better position you know, to, to refinance shortly thereafter. You don't have that hard balloon payment to be made. So that, that's a really neat feature. So, so I like that feature when doing an agency loan. I like the interest only options as well. Uh, just simply because it gives me more cash flow to make my payment, to make improvements, and to to weather the storm, so to speak, that may come up. So mm-hmm. those are some of the things that I look at. Daryl, this has been a great episode, man. Um, not a topic we talk about a lot, but so important for anyone that's considering multifamily or just a lot of lending questions in general that I feel... You know, we have a joke also that that I, like a lot of people I, I don't think call lenders because they don't want to potentially seem ignorant or uneducated when they're just getting started. So a lot of times I'm like, just call a lender in a totally random state, you know, you're never going to do any business with. But this is a better way to do that then because then then you don't have to waste someone's time. Um, but Daryl, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you if they either have questions or they have a deal or they just want to, you know, follow you on social media? Um, what's the best way to do do that? So, you know, you can reach me, um, you know, by giving me a call anytime. You know, I'm always available. You know, the phone never leaves my side. Uh, I can be reached at 704-904-5999. It's a pretty easy number. Or you can always email me, and it's daryl.bokitas at cbre.com. So, again, that's D-A-R-R-Y-L dot Bokitas, B-O-U-K-E-D-E-S, at cbre.com. So one of the things that I would suggest as well is when you guys are, are seriously looking at an, at an acquisition and, and Ryan, you know, and I talk about this a lot, you know, if you've identified a property you're seriously looking at, you need to be talking to the lender, your multifamily lender, you know, up front, you know, so that that lender can tell you, hey, this is what we're going to be able to finance on this property, because that in large part is going to uh, be a factor in, in what you offer, you know, for the property. So, you know, if you have those properties that you're seriously looking at, you know, what we as a lender, what I need to see is a current rent roll on the property and the last year and year to date, you know, P&L for the property or a T12, you know, the trailing 12 months worth of financials. With that information, you know, we can size it up and say, okay, you know, your seller wants 4 million for the property, we can finance, you know, 3.3 million. Or, you know, we can finance 3.3 million. He's looking for 6 million. He might be asking a little bit too much. You know, so you, you really want to know what kind of debt you can put on that property, you know, before, uh, before you go into contract for it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right, Daryl. Well, I just want to say thank you again for coming on, man. This has been really informative and I think going to help a lot of people. Um, so hopefully we can work together at some point. And uh, especially after what Ryan said, you know, has, has nothing but good things. And, and if anyone's in not only the North Carolina area, that's one thing I also want to point out that Daryl can service loans or help people with loans kind of across the country. It doesn't have to be in one Southern state or Northern state. It doesn't matter if you have loan questions, he's happy to help. So uh, Daryl, just want to say thank you again and best of luck in 2021. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. And we look forward to uh, to working with you and 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 hopefully anyone that, that is listening as well. We would welcome the opportunity. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Daryl. Talk to you soon.
Hey, you millennial millionaire. Are you looking for help getting to the next level in real estate? Are you looking for accountability and strategy to achieve your goals? If so, Jonathan is now taking on one-on-one students and opening a few spots in his private mastermind. It's affordable and welcome to everyone. If you had any questions or think you may need a boost, send Jonathan a message on Facebook or email at johnjfarber at outlook.com. 